I'm uh, Pastor Michael, and um, before we dive into the sermon, I wanted to share um, about uh, my experience two weeks ago when I went to the MTW uh, Missions Conference. Um, it was uh, in Sacramento, and uh, Josh Lim and I, I don't know where he is, there he is, Josh Lim and I, we, uh, we drove up there together and we shared a hotel room together and um, it was really great because basically you have um, four hours where you're just sitting in a car and you know we just talked about everything. We talked about life and church and ministry and money and dating and everything, right? And I felt like uh, it was such a great experience. I got to know Josh so well. I feel like I want to do that with everyone in the church. You know, I just want to, let's just get in a car together, drive out for two hours, eat at an Arby's and come back, you know. <laughs> um, but the missions conference was really deeply encouraging to me. There was about 20 or so missionaries who shared about uh, their lives and what's going on. And the overriding theme that I heard was one of loneliness. Because for missionaries, um, they never truly feel welcomed and embraced by the people, the, the native people that they're ministering to. They always feel like an outsider. And for the people back at home, all of their friends and supporting churches, you know, over time, um, they feel forgotten. They feel like the relationships thin out. And so there's this deep loneliness. And uh, that's one of the things that um, our missions committee here in our church, we're right now looking for a missionary to support. We want to address that, and we want that to be you know, central to what we do, not just to write them a check once a month, but to um, have a deep relationship of friendship and connection and love with them. Um, the most encouraging thing uh, in the missions conference for me was just listening to the prayers. Um, every time there was a, a time of prayer, they would ask a missionary to come up, and that missionary would pray in a foreign language, um, the, the language of their uh, mission field. And uh, there was this one person, his name was Ochan. He's a, he's a Japanese man. Um, the story of how he became a Christian is really interesting. Um, in Japan, apparently, it's like this really trendy cultural thing to sing gospel music. And so there's all these um, gospel choirs that you could join. And so he joined one, you know, not because he was a Christian, but simply for the musicality of it. And as he was singing the gospel music, as he was singing these, you know, Negro spirituals, he started to listen to the lyrics. And by singing the lyrics, he got converted. And so he went out and he looked for a church and he joined the church. And now he's um, in the United States in seminary studying to become a pastor. And he's going to go back to be a pastor in Japan. And uh, he went up and um, he prayed in Japanese. And then he would translate it into English. And um, he was praying that the Spirit of God would come down on Japan. You know, Japan has less than 1% uh, Christians. And um, it was truly one of the most beautiful prayers that I've ever heard. I've never heard Japanese um, be used in prayer. It was so beautiful. I started to cry. And uh, it reminded me of that scene in Revelation chapter 5 when all of God's people, every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered and they're worshiping the Lamb in every language. And Japanese is going to be one of them. 
And it just made my heart so encouraged and happy, you know. And I'm really glad we're going to support a missionary. This is part of our vision to follow Jesus and to help others to follow Jesus. And so I'm really um, glad that you guys gave me the opportunity to go to the conference. Thank you to Wade for preaching for me so I can go. There were others who went. There's Josh Lim, Tracy, uh, Michael, and Linda Kwong. I hope you'll talk with them and ask them about their experience and what their impression was. Um, but with that in mind, let's, let's jump into the sermon. All right, so we are doing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. And for the next two weeks, we're going to look at John chapter 11. And John chapter 11 is one of the most famous stories in the Bible for good reason, because it's one of the most dramatic, one of the most vivid stories that shows us the power and the divinity of Jesus. Because you have this really, you know, this spectacular, you know, one of the most incredible miracles in the Bible, which is Lazarus rising from the grave, right? Still in his grave clothes, so dramatic. And I want you to notice, though, that it begins with a delay. A frustrating, seemingly inexplicable delay. And I want you to know that that delay is important. And so let's look at this. What does this teach us about Jesus? And what does this teach us about what it means to follow him? And so turn with me to page four in your bulletin. I'll read to you John chapter 11. I'm going to read to you just verses 1 through 16. This is sort of the first third of the story. And then uh, next week, we'll look into the, I'll, I'll, I'll lead you into the meat of the story. But um, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. 
And for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is the word of God. (laughs) There's a lot of humor. All right. So here's the outline, three points. Uh, First, we're going to look at the delay of Jesus. Number two, we're going to look at what it means to be asleep in Christ. And then finally, um, what it is to walk in the light. All right, so number one, the delay of Jesus. So let's dive into the story. Verse one tells us um, Lazarus is sick. Now, Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. And if you know the Gospels, you are familiar with this family. In fact, they, um, there are three separate stories about them in the Gospels because Jesus was always spending time with his family. He was constantly enjoying their hospitality because this family was near to his heart. So that notice when um, Mary and Martha send Jesus a message, they don't even have to name Lazarus. Right? They say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Because that's how close they were to him. They don't even have to ask him what they want because he already knows. Because you see, he loves this family. That's what it's telling us in verse 3. And it tells us this again in verse 5. It says, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, which makes verse 6 so puzzling. Because in verse 6 it says, listen to this, So... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So here you have Jesus' beloved friend, Lazarus, and he's sick. In fact, we know that he's at the point of death. Jesus knows he's at the point of death. And yet Jesus waits two additional days, two heart-sickening excruciating days. I want you to put yourself in the place of Mary and Martha. Every day, they're looking out at the horizon and they're waiting for Jesus to return. And every day, Jesus, uh, Lazarus's condition is getting worse and worse and they're falling into despair. Can you imagine their agony? And what's even more puzzling is that little word so at the beginning of verse 6. The word so is the English translation of the Greek word un. And un can be translated because of or therefore. And it's a very interesting little word. If you look at the Greek and English lexicon entry for un, it says that un is a connecting word that shows you the cause and effect relationship between two sentences. So un there is connecting verse 5 to verse 6. Verse 5 is the cause. Verse 6 is the effect. What is that telling us? Why did Jesus wait those two additional days? It's telling us it was not despite his love but it was because of his love that he waited those two terrible days. Now, congregation, let's apply this to our lives. What does this mean for us? It means, listen to me, 
It means that Jesus' love and Jesus' delays are not incompatible. You see, we think they're incompatible. That's the natural bent of the human heart. We think that if Jesus really loves me, if he really cares for me, then he wouldn't make me wait like that. He wouldn't make me suffer like that. And if that's what you think this passage is telling you, you're wrong. You're wrong. Because, listen, God's grace and God's love almost never operates on our schedule. It almost never goes according to our timetable, and it makes our hearts, frankly, sick. Almost everyone in this room is waiting. Some of you I know, you're waiting to be married, and you're wondering, when is that person going to show up in my life? Some of you in this room are waiting to have children. You have so much love to share. Some of you are waiting to be healed, and you bear physical or emotional wounds, and it's a terrible burden to bear. Some of you are waiting for your careers to finally start, and you just feel like you're stuck. And these are things that you've worked for. These are things that you've asked for and you've longed for and you have prayed and prayed and prayed for, but it just hasn't happened. It's happened to other people, but not for you. And it just feels like life is passing you by. And it feels like God's delays they seem inexcusable, they seem unreasonable, and you find yourself falling into despondency and anger, and you question whether God loves you at all. And here I want to share with you a personal story. And uh, this is a story that um, actually, if you've been with us for a long time, uh, I've shared this story with you before a couple of times. It's the story of how I became a pastor. And um, I want to tell you this story again because I want you to know that this is a life-shaping story for me. And as your pastor, I, I want you to know my story. So here's my story. Um, when I was in college, I felt I heard the call to pastoral ministry. I discovered the gospel in a really powerful way, and I found in myself just this deep love of ministry and this deep desire to teach people the Bible. I want to dedicate my life to that. And so the next step, the first step, is, of course, to go to seminary. And uh, in seminary, you need money to go. But I just thought that God would provide. You know, if God is calling me to ministry, why wouldn't he provide? And so I just thought he would open doors, he would make a way, and, and so I didn't really worry about it. I, I thrust myself into ministry. Every summer I would go on missions trips. And then when I graduated, I discovered to my surprise that I didn't have the funds to go to seminary. So I had to work. I had to get a job and save up money. 
And so I got a job as an assistant manager at Walgreens. And I got to tell you, the whole time, I just had a rotten attitude about it. I felt like this was just a waste of my time, and I was just fuming. And then this thought came to me. I said, God, I, I know what you're doing. Through this experience, you're teaching me patience. You're giving me sermon illustrations. <laughs> and so I said, OK. And so I figured it would go on for maybe a year. And so I waited. Do you know how long I worked at Walgreens? I worked for three years. And I want you to know that those were very painful years for me. Because I felt completely stymied and frustrated. And I became really angry with God. Because I felt like this was pointless. Why are you wasting these precious years? I have so much potential, right? I should be out there doing ministry, preparing for ministry. And um, the Walgreens that I worked at, which was in Alameda, it had um, two stories. And the, um, the upstairs was the stock room, which was a real pain because you had to climb up a flight of stairs every time you wanted to get anything. But there was one advantage to it which is that because it was sort of isolated, you can go up into the stock room to hide. <laughs> and on occasion, I would go up to the stock room and I would set down, um, I remember this so vividly, I would set down a crate of pineapple juice and I would sit on it and I would just cry and feel sorry for myself. And then I went to seminary and I was so frantic because I felt like I had to make up um, for lost time. And I was so ravenous, you know. And I would say to Christina, we were married uh, by this time, I would say to her, don't bother me. Don't ask me for anything. I'm reading theology. <laughs> I would literally say that to her numerous times. <laughs> And then after three years of this, Christina and I, we moved to Boston where I got my first ministry job. It was a, a one-year internship at a church. And I was so excited because I was thinking, this is it. The detour is over. It's finally happening. But at the end of the, at the, end of the year, it didn't work out. And they said to me, they said, Michael, you know, we really like you. You show a lot of raw potential, but you're not there yet, and you need a lot more seasoning. And that was crushing. And so I went to another church, and I really threw myself in there, you know, and I, and I volunteered, and I applied for a position, but it didn't work out. And so I was in Boston for three years, and during that time, I worked at a hospital at, uh, doing computer support, waiting for my ministry to begin. And then we moved back to the Bay Area. And I went to another PCA church in Berkeley. And I begged them. I said, please, please, give me a chance. And they said to me, Michael, 
you show a lot of promise, you have a lot of raw potential, but we don't have a place for you here. Do you know when it is that I finally got my first call to be a pastor of a church? It was 11 years after I had graduated college. I was 33 years old. And during those 11 years, I was so angry at God. I was resentful towards Him. Because I was asking myself, God, if you called me into ministry, why? Why would you frustrate me like this? You know, I've had a long, long time to think about that answer. And I still don't see the full picture. But I've come to understand, and you know, it's been 10 years now. I've been a pastor for 10 years. I've come to understand in a very deep way that those 11 years, God was not impeding me from ministry. He was preparing me for ministry. Because I look back at that snotty, arrogant, foolish young person that I was, and I realized that through the furnace of disappointment and heartache and suffering, God was shaping my character and refining my character for ministry, and I know I still have a long way to go. And let me share one more thing. You know, the memory of those years are still very vivid for me. And I think one thing that it has done is it's given me this permanent reference point. And so every day, and I say this without exaggeration, every day I'm filled with wonder and gratitude for what I have. And that feeling has never gone away. And I look out at you guys, and I'm amazed that God has called me to this great privilege and joy of being your pastor. It amazes me. And so what is this text telling us? What is this story telling us? It's telling us that Jesus will not be hurried. He's too wise. He's too loving to be rushed. And I want you to know that when you ask Jesus to intervene in your life, I want you to be prepared because you're going to get more than you bargained for. The deal never works out the way you think it will. Because look at Mary and Martha in the story. They asked, what were they asking Jesus? They asked Jesus for a healing, not for a resurrection. They got a resurrection. They got a front row seat to one of the greatest miracles in all of the Bible. And they saw the power and the glory of God in Jesus Christ so that they saw so clearly, so unmistakably that He is indeed the Savior of the world. And so I, I want you to look at the story. I want you to see the deep wisdom of Jesus. And I want you to see the, the, the great love in which Jesus is taking care of this family. And when you see that, you'll be able to bear the delays in your life. And then the delays won't make you bitter. They'll make you great if you'll let them. 
All right, second point. Asleep in Christ. So you need to know that this whole story, uh, John chapter 11, is a long meditation on death. And next week, uh, I'm going to unpack it in much greater depth. And I want you to know that the Christian view of death is utterly unique. Because at the same time, it's utterly realistic about the awfulness of death, and it is utterly hopeful about death, that death is not the end. But today, I just want to look at this. In verse 11, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. It's an astonishing statement. There's so many layers to it. The first thing is that Jesus here, I want you to know, he nullifies death. He makes death impotent and powerless. Because remember, in the Garden of Eden, the penalty of sin, the curse of sin is death. But in the Gospel, Jesus Christ has turned death into sleep. It's like um, that Disney fairy tale, Sleeping Beauty. You know, as a father of young children, I've had to watch through all the Disney movies again. And um, in Sleeping Beauty, the story goes like this. There's, um, there's a princess who is cursed by this evil fairy named Maleficent. And the curse is that when she pricks her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel, she'll die. And despite all of her uh, parents' best attempts to keep spinning wheels away from the castle, away from her presence, she cannot avoid her fate. She pricks her finger. And what happens then is that her three fairy godmothers, they use their good magic. They can't rescue her, but what they do is they, they transform her death into this deep sleep. And then the whole castle goes to sleep, and they're waiting for this heroic prince to come and rescue them. The Bible is telling us that this is not just a fairy tale, but in Jesus Christ, who is our heavenly prince, this has come true. And so what is this imagery of sleep that Jesus speaks of telling us? It's telling us that when we die, we only go to sleep. And one day Jesus will take our hands and he will say to us, it's time to wake up. And then we will awaken into this new world, a better world, a world of righteousness and beauty, and death will be no more. And I want you to know that this is the basis of the Christian hope. And this gives us an enormous resource to be able to face and to handle death. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and 14. Listen to this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, he's talking about the second coming, those who have fallen asleep, what does it mean to grieve without hope? You see, if 
what the world says is true, that this life is all that there is, that all you have is this material existence and nothing else, then when you die or when your loved ones die, that's it. You will never see or talk to them again. You will never enjoy their company because they are gone forever. And it's awful. I think this is why in our modern society, we don't like to talk about death. It's too horrible to contemplate, and so we push it away. And this is why in modern cities, we've hidden away our graveyards. Have you noticed that? Several years ago, I read a really interesting article in The Atlantic about the history of cemeteries. And the author says that around the middle of the 1800s, there was a transformation in the way um, we treated cemeteries so that rather than cemeteries being near the center of cities, we began to push them out to the outskirts, to these faraway rural plots of land. And it's really true. I remember when I lived in Boston. You know, Boston is one of the oldest cities in America. Many of the structures are still standing. And one of the things that really struck me about Boston is that there are cemeteries everywhere. There are these old municipal cemeteries still in, uh, near town squares. Every old church building has a graveyard. And it really struck me because it was this constant reminder of our mortality. But modern cities have no place for that. Why are we so uncomfortable with death? Why can't we face it? And I think it's because we don't have an answer to death. Because if what the modern world says is true, then death is the great destroyer. It destroys meaning. It destroys uh, relationships. But I want you to know that in Christ, in the gospel, death is only a passing shadow. I once heard this um, beautiful illustration by uh, Tim Keller. Tim Keller told this story about he knew, uh, how he knew this pastor whose wife had died. And they had a little girl. And um, they were driving home from the funeral. The pastor and his daughter lost in deep thought. And as they were driving home, at one point the pastor, he saw this enormous truck driving by. And he said to his daughter, he said, do you see that truck? And he said, do you see the shadow of the truck? And then he said to his little girl, he said, would you rather be hit by the truck or by its shadow? And the little girl answered, by the shadow. And the pastor said, I want you to know that because Jesus was hit by the truck of death, your mother only has to go through the shadow of it. I think about that story a lot. And uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because I'm a father now, but I think about my death a lot lately. Because I know that one day Christina will die, and I will die. And I want my two boys to be prepared for that. And so I tell my boys, I say to them, listen, if you give your life to Christ, then death is only a passing shadow. 
when you die, you're only going to sleep, and then one day you will wake up in God's new world. And one day I'm going to die. And when I die, you can say to me, you don't have to say to me goodbye. You can say to me until we meet again. That's the Christian hope. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Finally, last point, walking in the light. I want to focus on the middle paragraph. Jesus says, let us go to Lazarus in Judea. And the disciples exclaim in verse 8, they say, Rabbi, the Jews, and let me pause here for a moment because I want to make this crystal clear. When the Gospel of John refers to the Jews, he is not referring to all Jewish people. That would be absurd. Jesus was a Jew. John was a Jew. The Apostle Paul was a Jew. Most people in the Bible were Jewish, right? So he's not talking about all Jewish people. He's ta- it's a shorthand way to refer to the Jewish religious leadership. Okay, so he's talking about the religious authorities. So they say, Rabbi, the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? So the disciples here are greatly alarmed. Why? And you have to understand, and you have to remember what happened at the end of chapter 10. We looked at this last week. Pastor Wade had a fantastic sermon on this. You see, Jesus was um, in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and he was debating with the religious leaders. And at one point, he basically, basically claims divinity. He says, I and the Father are one. And the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They were outraged by this. This huge uproar erupts, and they try to arrest Jesus, and right there, on the temple grounds, they try to arrest him and kill him, to stone him to death. And somehow, in a way that the disciples can't quite understand how it happened, they managed to slip out from the crowd and escape. But they were deeply shaken by that experience. And then Jesus is saying, we have to return. And the disciples are terrified by this because you have to understand that Bethany, where Lazarus is, is actually only just two miles from Jerusalem. It's just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Um, It's actually a suburb of Jerusalem. And so they think, if we go to Bethany, we're signing our own death warrant. And in response, Jesus gives this mini parable in verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. He says, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, in, in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So this parable is not too difficult to understand. You have to remember in the ancient world, no electricity, no street lights. Um, And so if you try to walk in the night, if you've ever gone camping, you know this experience, right? If you walk in the night, because it is pitch dark, you will stumble and fall. And so what is Jesus talking about? When he's talking about this, 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 this possibility of stumbling, he's talking about where the true danger lies. You see, the disciples thought, 
The danger is in Jerusalem. It's where the soldiers are, sharpening their knives, waiting for us. But if we stay here, if we stay in Galilee, we'll be safe. And Jesus is saying, you're wrong. The true danger is to walk in the night. And only when you walk in the day, in the light, will you be safe. And so what does it mean to walk in the light? What is this light that Jesus is referring to? You have to remember what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12. Listen to this. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what he's saying is if you follow Jesus, if you believe in him, and trust in Him, then you will never stumble. You will never perish. Which is why he says in verse 4, Lazarus's death will not lead, sorry, Lazarus's illness will not lead to death. So that death, even death, that most intractable enemy of humanity, Jesus has rendered mute and dumb. How? How did He do this? We have to go to the end of our story. In verse 16, Thomas, one of the disciples says, let us also go that we may die with him. And it's very interesting about Thomas. Um, in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Thomas is only mentioned in the list of the 12 disciples. And it's only in the Gospel of John that he's more fully fleshed out. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there are four separate appearances or places where Thomas is talking and speaking, the most famous of which, of course, is um, in John chapter 20, when Thomas says, I'm not going to believe in the resurrection until I can put my finger into the nail wounds of Jesus. And so Thomas, in the Gospel of John, represents the skepticism and the disbelief of the disciples. And he's absolutely convinced that if they go down to Jerusalem, it's a death sentence. And in a kind of bluster of courage, they, he says, okay, Jesus, we'll go down and we'll die with you. Thomas was half right. Jerusalem was a death sentence, but not for the disciples, only for Jesus. And what would happen in Jerusalem is that Jesus would be arrested, he would be put on trial, and then he would be executed by the Roman authorities. And the disciples, despite Thomas's bravado and assurance, they would all abandon him. And so I want you to understand that John chapter 11 is the turning point in the story because John chapter 11 begins this irrevocable, irreversible sequence of events that inevitably leads to the cross. Because in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in this public venue, in this very public way, just around the corner from Jerusalem. And then what happens in John 11 is that it's the, the miracle is reported back to the Jerusalem authorities. And then at the end of John 11, the Sanhedrin meet in secret council and they decide this man has to die. He's too much of a threat. He's drawing too much attention from the Roman authorities. He's drawing too much public acclaim we have to kill him. That's the definitive plan. 
And then what happens in John chapter 12, in the very next chapter, is that from Bethany, Jesus goes directly into Jerusalem. You have the triumphal entry. And then from John chapter 12 and on, you have a a recounting of the last days, the last week of Jesus' life until you get to the cross. And therefore, Jesus knows that the only way he could raise Lazarus to life is if he forfeits his own. That's the only way. Because this miracle would be conducted in such a public way, he knew that he was forcing the hands of his enemies. And therefore, he knew if Jesus draws Lazarus out from the grave, the only way is that he would have to let the grave pull him in and bury him so that it's an exchange. Life for Lazarus, but only because it's death for Jesus on the cross. And that's the gospel. The gospel is the sacrificial death of Jesus for Lazarus and for all who believe that we might have eternal life. I want you to know that this story is a, really, is a beautiful gift to us. Because in the story we see how it ends. You know, you and I, all of us, we're in the middle of our story right now. And we don't know how it will end. We don't know how all the pieces fit together. But when we look at this family of Mary, Matthew, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and when we see how Jesus loves them and cares for them, we will be able to endure our own delays And we will be able to follow Jesus no matter where he leads, even if he leads us into Jerusalem, into the very heart and the valley of darkness itself. Because why? We have him. We have the light of Christ. And if we have him, we will never stumble. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this beautiful demonstration of the, wa- of the wisdom and the love of Jesus. And so often our temptation is that we judge your love by our circumstances. But give us the faith to judge our circumstances by your love. So that your love is foundational. And we don't see everything. We don't see how all the pieces fit. We don't understand how the story is developing. But we thank you for this glimpse that in the end, everything will come together perfectly. All the strands, all the threads of our lives will be woven into this beautiful tapestry for our glory, for our joy, and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.